future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome. It is Friday, April 22nd, 2022. Welcome to Raging Chickens Out to Coop Podcast. It's our Friday Politics Roundup, everybody. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. This week, I am joined once again by the one, the only, Amy Connect. Yes, we're here to break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can count on that for sure. <laughs> That's for sure. You can help support this show by head, uh, becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. And you can also help out the show right now by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. Uh, little show notes. This coming Monday, April 25th at 7 p.m., I'm welcoming union organizer and award-winning writer Daisy Pitkin to the show to talk about her new book, On the Line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union. I tell you one, this book is freaking amazing. It's a heartbreaking, hopeful, truthful, complicated, and beautiful book. I cannot wait to talk to her on Monday. Now, for more PA Progressive Talk, tune to the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook. Subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcast. Head on over to ricksmithshow.com for all the latest across all of his platforms. And it's official. You know it. Season 2 of Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast is flooding the streams. It's in really full flow at this point. Uh, you can find it on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And attention all you gamers out there. The Game In, that's with two N's. The Game In is a Quakertown-based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything from Retro N64s to the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, and loads of collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops. You got it. And kids, get A's on the report card. They get a discount. How's that? Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at The Game In. If you got a question about a game, looking for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. Special shout-out, as always, goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at at Man. That's with two N's. That's at Man on Twitter. Well, on today's show, we're going to be, uh, you know, kind of dipping into the week's news, checking in to see what's happening in our backyards. Um, just some things, a little headline kind of out, like, right off the top. We've got the Biden administration uh, out there teasing a new round of student debt cancellation and relief. The Education Department said on Tuesday that could mean debt cancellation for about 40,000 borrowers and three years of additional credit for more than 3.6 million borrowers seeking an income-driven repayment. Um, that could add a boost to the economy, maybe, and long-term well-being for tens of thousands of Americans. We shall see. A uh, new bank rate study came out earlier this week and uh, found that, yeah, Surprise, surprise, Gen Z and millennials have put off 
pretty much every major decision that they can make um, due to the fact that they're servicing the big banks through debt payments. So why is he just not canceling all the student debt right now? Go figure. I don't know. Well, the woman behind Libs of TikTok Twitter account has been outed by new reporting by Taylor Lawrence of, in the Washington Post. Lawrence reports that Chaya Rychik, a real estate person, uh, salesperson from Brooklyn, at least that's how she got her start, um, is behind the account, which spread all the groomer conspiracy theories on social media and has the ears of right-wing lawmakers such as presidential hopeful Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And Jeffrey, yes... Yep, that's right. The head of Susquehanna International Group and the deep-pocketed right-wing political funder is officially the richest man in Pennsylvania, according to a new analysis by ProPublica. He has collected an average of $1.3 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars a year in annual income from 2013 to 2018. Only five other Americans earned more. And maybe that's why, you know, he's uh, putzing around in all our public schools and funding all these right-wing nutjobs. Um, out there because he's got nothing else to better to do with his money. And this morning, New York Times released a report that reviewed the 21 of Florida's rejected math books. Yeah, you know those math books? Remember that presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis we were just talking about? Yeah, well, here you go. This is part of what he's been doing with all that libs of TikTok information he's getting. Yep, Florida's Department of Education reported that the rejected books contain, quote, prohibited topics such as critical race theory and social emotional learning they found it was too divisive <laughs> sorry okay I had to throw it. the puns just are easy only four pages were released by the department as examples one containing a problem set that used statistical data from the race implicit association test god forbid you even mention the fact that there's people in the world that are studying stuff unbelievable a little closer to home here in Pennsylvania, court challenges were filed by a Lycoming County resident calling for the removal of Doug Mastriano and Scott Perry from ballots from next week's primary because of their participation in the January 6th Capitol insurrection. There's a few of these uh, lawsuits going around across the country, actually. It's kind of interesting. And the Pennsylvania State System of Higher Education is looking to sell off two of the luxury dorms at Edinburgh University that were completed just 10 years ago and featured quite prominently in my early reporting at Raging Chicken. Yep, uh, I'll never kind of like one of my favorite pieces I ever wrote was called Wall Street on the Susquehanna Pashi Bond Scheme Bleeds Education Budget for Beautiful Buildings featuring the very buildings that they're getting ready to sell right now. How about that? And Palisades made headlines again. Yep, the Herald ran a piece last week about Palisades reconsidering a live streaming option for school board meetings. That's so freaking awesome that they're um, that's on the table on open discussion. The option to live stream meetings would cover both regular bi-monthly board meetings as well as committee meetings. We need that transparency for all, everybody. And PA Democrats, candidates for Senate, they debated last night. What will that mean? Well, we shall see. Be curious to uh, folks tuning in today what you thought about the debate if you watched it. And Amy was doing some phone banking last night for Alexander Hunt. Yeah, we'll check in and see how that went. Pretty, free, pretty freaking cool stuff all the way around. Yep, but it's time we've got some people-powered tools to elect Dems and independents committed to high-quality, inclusive education for all children, everybody. Yes, we need to end the domination of right-wing money tipping the scales to the extreme. Help us here at Raging Chicken invest in progressive organizing and progressive candidates committed to ending the right-wing assault on our communities. You can make a donation to the Raging Chicken Community Fund today. The link is in today's show notes. 
And uh, we're going to be investing in education. You know, after you got sick, you sit around, you kind of see what these kind of highly paid consultants are misinforming our potential candidates um, in their campaigns for school board. Um, maybe we just need to kind of support ourselves, right? Instead of these fly-by-night kind of DC-based consultants. What do you say? You can head on over to ragingchicken.levelfield.net and you can make a donation and help build our war chest here in Bucks County um, to take back, um, you know, our community from the crazies. And if we want a progressive future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No Punches Homegrown Progressive Media today. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. We're here for the fight, but we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement and the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month by going to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Well, you know, uh, here we are. Amy, welcome, welcome. It's so great to have you back on today. Hi, good morning. How are you? Uh, you know, I'm a little disheveled, uh, <laughs> as I think was probably evident in our little <laughs> time before the show. I have like little tech issues. The stream was kind of all weird. Uh, it's the, closing in at the end of the semester for me. So my brain is, is and my allergies are kicked in. So my brain is a little stuffed with cotton, I guess. Ah, oh, yeah, man, you and everybody else. My kids have been stuffed up all week. Yeah, my uh, I think my son my son keeps on worrying me. I think that that he's going to get COVID again um, because you know, and you don't know, you know. And I guess the flu is going around in the schools now. It's just been it's been crazy. Is it? See, I haven't. I didn't hear the flu. I did know that there was some kind of stomach bug um, yep. the other week. But <laughs> yep, that too. That too. Yep, yep. The flu is making its rounds. Uh, so you know. Just, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just like, I'm just glad. I'm glad. The one thing my university did right uh, is they, they're, looks like they're actually going to keep the mask mandate in the classrooms, at least through the end of the semester. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a partial decent thing. Uh, although now a lot of students are just, uh, they don't want to wear a mask at all and whatever. So now I become like the mask cop again, but. Yeah. Well, that just happened at Cedar Crest. I guess there was an email um, uh, and they, they, are allowing people to go maskless in common areas, the library, you know, outside, that kind of stuff. Um, but inside the classroom setting, you still have to wear a mask. Yep, that's that's pretty much that's pretty much what we got. There's no doubt about yeah. it. Well, let's talk about a little. So let's look at the start what's happened. Some some of the things that's happened nationally. I mean, I think um, uh, one of the things. Uh, did you follow that that whole thing with libs of TikTok outing? I, I saw I was I was I was watching it on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> I was watching it as it unfolded, um, but I haven't really got there. Ugh, it's just one of those I haven't gotten to it yet. Yeah, it's just fascinating. I mean, I think uh, you know, it was the kind of thing where, uh, to be honest with you, I kind of heard there was this thing by libs of TikTok, but I've been so kind of doing the grind at this point that I've not really paid close attention to it. And uh, but you know, apparently, this is one of the primary sources behind all of this kind of like anti-trans uh kind of you know this 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 whole grooming mm -hmm. argument that's appearing in our school boards across the country oh my gosh yes <laughs> and it's you know and, and it's really it's basically what this uh it turns out you know this woman um that was was outed uh the story behind it is actually interesting because like you know she was basically you know she looked like she was looking for kind of like a a grift basically um she went through kind of multiple different kinds of accounts looking for something that would stick um finally she landed on kind of like basically 
um, kind of trolling, um, you know, kind of like teenagers and kind of young adults who are LGBTQ on um, on TikTok, then basically reframing and repackaging what they were saying to make it sound kind of like, oh, my God, you know, the gays are coming for you. And then she would be releasing this stuff on TikTok. And then you got people like Glenn, Glenn Greenwald started boosting her account. Right. Um, and boosting mm-hmm. that and say, I love this thing. He cons- came out and said he considered himself like the godfather of libs of TikTok. Um, and, you know, it's like it's like, what the heck is going on? And then as as you know, in this reporting by um, by Taylor Lawrence, and she gets into like, you know, this was something that was regularly retweet- or retweeted by the governor of Texas, by Ron DeSantis in Florida. Um, and then it starts it was actually influencing policy to the point where these people were on the phone with this woman. Um, to kind of like get more dirt for their kind of like anti-gay kind of agendas. It's pretty freaking crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I did see it. And I, she was, um, I was confused because when I first saw it, I thought it was, first of all, a liberal like promotion site or something yeah. like that, not realizing what was going on. Um, but she was, this woman is a total troll. I mean, the fact that she had to scour how many accounts to find something, um, you know, that she felt would be newsworthy, I guess. <laughs> it's just crazy. I have it, to... it just shows you like the lengths that people, cause you could be doing so many other things yeah. other than trolling accounts to embarrass liberals. <laughs> well, and it's even worse than that, right? Because it's like, yeah. it wasn't even just to yeah. embarrass, but it was actually to kind of, you know, there were some of those, like, especially early on, like earlier on um, when she was really targeting, um, you know, kind of teenage students is like, you know, Oh, see, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't see. That yeah. Part. She was basically re like basically repackaging um, stuff from high school and college um, students. And basically, you know, talking about them as, you know, potential grooming or predators and all this other stuff. And then finally she landed on, Oh no, let's just stick with the gay and trans teachers. Yeah, um, so we go after them. Um, but my favorite detail about this whole thing is that uh, when Taylor, Taylor Lawrence in the article, it's published in the Washington Post, so people could check it mm-hmm. out. The link's in today's show notes. Um, but Taylor, um, Taylor Lawrence, um, she said when she was kind of tracking down all these accounts, um, she, you know, apparently there was several, this Chaya Raichik is her name, and uh, there were several Chaya Raichiks there. So she wanted to just kind of make sure she had the right person. So there was, so she went to um, this woman's house. Nobody came and answered the door, right? Um, so she wasn't, she wasn't sure. And then Glenn Greenwald, right? The guy who's like, you know, all now on the cancel culture bandwagon um, and who's like a promoter of libs of TikTok basically tweets out that like, oh my God, can you believe this reporter actually showed up at, Ry- at, at Chaya Raichik's house, like at her house, right? And that was the confirmation. Right. That's what confirmed wow. for her that she had the right person. Wow. So Glenn Greenwald spilled the beans on his own little project. So whatever. It was just nuts. But I just like, you know, I mean, how freaking how freaking like, I don't know, debased do you have to be that this is what you're you're spending your I mean, like you were saying, this is the kind of thing you're spending your time doing. It's just absolutely crazy. Well, it is. And the fact that we have like top politicians listening to these people without really checking into anything i mean it's it's disgusting it shows you what kind of you know what kind of values and morals i think that you know people like DeSantis really really hold to 100 percent. and this i mean it, i don't think this like plays out any other better place than uh what just happened down there with the say the banning of the math books that you know that you, <laughs> i um they're checking out so i mean yeah. what's going on with that seriously 
Well, so the New York Times released uh, a report this morning, um, and it went over 21 of the Florida's rejected math books. Now, there hasn't been a lot of information um, about the math books that were rejected. Like, there isn't, I guess, a really great methodology <laughs> that the Department of Education is is using. Um, so the New York Times is basically like going over 21 of these books, and and based upon four pages. <laughs> that the department that Florida's Department of Education released. Um, they, they did a review off of that, which isn't much to go off of. Um, uh, but the rejected books were said to have contained prohibited topics such as, you know, critical race theory and social emotional learning, um, which the critical race theory, I looked at the examples that the Department of Education released. And the only thing that it talked about was that, um, uh it's like a um like a self-assessment almost test mm -hmm. what did i say it was the race implicit what was the name of it the race uh, implicit association test i think right yeah that yeah, one yeah, so yeah. and yeah and it was being used for um a set of statistical data like it, it was ridiculous like it wasn't referring to critical race theory at all it just had the word race <laughs> it, it's it's completely ridiculous. And then some of the other pages, um, some of the other things that the New York Times was going through, you know, they had, they, they had little characters on the side of some of these textbooks, um, like the one that they have on their website. Yeah, I love you know, it. It starts off, yeah, there's like, there's this little, little, um, you know, white girl, and she's saying that, you know, uh, this, this boy can find this problem by starting, you know, he says, uh, he can find nine plus five by starting with nine plus one equals 10. What do you think about Andy's way? And then the little boy on the side who is a uh, black boy says to learn together, disagree respectfully. And that's the type of things that the Department of Education in Florida is having issues with. Because they're seeing that's social emotional learning. <laughs> and this is all really confusing because I don't see issues with any of this stuff. Like I don't, I'm often confused about what people are trying to like point to that SEL does in a way that like indoctrinates or makes people racist because it doesn't. The only thing it does is it provides extra support. It allows kids to, you know, think about things in a more creative way. Um, it also encourages students to like work together. So that math right. problem right there is like, well, maybe this boy thinks he has the right way, right? And it's not obviously the right way to go about the problem. But like, instead of getting all mad and stomping your feet, you know, you need to stop, you need to listen, you need to work together. And that's basically what I think should be in math books, especially because yeah. it's, it's calculations. You know, you have problems like that and not everybody learns in the same way especially in in that area um so to me you know it looks like that the department of education down in florida is basically like we don't want children learning to help each other like you just have to learn the problem and that's it like there's right. no expansion on that and that's not how things like actually work so uh <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I look at, you know, I, it's been, I remember when my, um, when my kids were, you know, they were first, they were first going to school and, um, you know, they're learning math. And then other parents that we know around the age too as well, you know, we're all looking and, you know, we've all had this experience. If you have kids that are going through the quote unquote new math, 
right? It's very different from um, from the mm -hmm. math, like how I learned to do math when I was growing up, right? And so it took time, a little, you know, time on our end, right, just to kind of like figure out how the approach. And one of the things that I found most fascinating about it is exactly what's exemplified in, you know, that little cartoon, right, is that there isn't just one way to do a math problem. There's multiple approaches to getting to the same answer. And if yeah. you talk at, you know, if you talk to kind of like, you know, advanced kind of mathematician and scientists who kind of work with math problems, especially theoretical math, right, they're, you know, they look at this stuff and it's like, yeah, I mean, that's part of the creative process with math, right? Where you're thinking about how do you kind of come at a particular problem. And to basically, you know, this little, this little kind of cartoon basically saying like, hey, you know what? Like, it's not just about who's got the correct way. It's about talking about how you got to your answer. And let's look for if you got the right answer through that method, which is like what you'd want, right? Well, it is. And, and you know, the New York Times um, cited uh, DeSantis uh, stating that basically like it, it's it's a, it's a distraction. Right. So that social emotional learning is a distraction. And he said here they, they quoted him. They said math is about getting the right answer. It's not about how you feel about the problem. You know, and clearly DeSantis has no idea what he's talking about. Because it, it getting the right answer, there's <laughs> if there's multiple, it's not about feeling out the problem, I guess. I, I don't know. So, like I said, it's very confusing about how people like him are relating these concepts because it's it's an entirely on a whole other plane that is so filled with ignorance and misinformation. Um, it, it's like I, said, I feel I just feel like it's hard to explain sometimes to like what they think it is versus what it really is. No, one hundred percent. And I think that you know, I mean, this goes to. Uh... You know what? I I don't know. I've come. I've. I, we'll talk a little bit about this a little bit later on. Late, just just so everybody knows, a little later on in the show, we're going to talk about all the books we've been reading lately. So just so this has been <laughs> on my mind. Um, but um, is that you know? I start thinking about part of what the message is here is that it's just a reinforcing of this kind of there is one way. It's about competition, not cooperation, right? And that anything that stands in the way of say pretending that people are, you know, or of, of acknowledging that people come from a range of different kinds of backgrounds and experiences, then that has to be kind of that, they're labeling that as just kind of lie, as ideology, and as something that um, they want to kind of purge from our, you know, and, and send down the memory hole, which is like the oh, last yeah. thing in the world that you'd ever want to do if you're actually kind of interested in creative solving, uh, problem solving, um, you know, in a democracy, but. Well, and, and that's just it, like the, the, the exact, skills, right? The exact critical thinking skills that are needed in, in education to um, survive, exist, whatever you want to call it, just live, just be in our society the way it is. You, you have to think critically. And it's just like the word critical or, or the words together thinking critically has come to mean two entirely different things, right? Like, you know, you're either, they want people to think critically until it questions something they don't like, right? Or until it makes them feel bad or guilty about a behavior that they're probably displaying. Yep. And if, you know, if anybody's ever had kids that are in school or ever taught kind of kids, you know, you know is that one of the things, something like math is that there's a lot of kids, you know, there's this discourse that's out there that, you know, some people are just good at math and other people are just bad at math. Right. And that's just, first of all, fundamentally false. 
right? I mean, obviously, there's going to be a few people that kind of have some kind of natural kind of propensity towards math, right? And there's going to be some other people that don't get math kind of quite so well, right? Okay, we'll acknowledge that. (laughs) But the vast majority of people, it's in between, right? And it's kind of like building up kind of confidence that, no, no, actually, you can think about solving this problem, right? So math doesn't become something that's a barrier, but something that is a tool, right? I mean, I think that was just something that we'd want to have our kids learn, you know, to bring the culture wars I mean, look, you know, bring the culture wars into math is so freaking like beyond the pale. But I mean, all this stuff is really, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I, I like I said, I was telling you earlier, <laughs> you know, I, I would this, this the topic of rejecting math books based upon critical race theory or like social emotional learning is is laughable to me. It's completely laughable. It's so absurd. You know, but it's happening and these people are, are standing here and they're fully believing it. Um, <laughs> you know, that like this is that this type of supposed indoctrination is infiltrating every aspect of our society. And it's not, yep. you know, but they're seeing this everywhere they go. Everything they look at. Yeah, 100 percent. This is one of my favorite parts uh, about this article in New York Times is that uh, one of the segments that they unpack is there is that. Um, it, that it's a subheading says giving students a growth mindset. It says some of the theories linked to social emotional learning, which is being targeted as part of that legislation in Florida, have uh, permeated deep into popular culture in the business world. Among the most popular are the concept of a growth mindset, right? Developed by Carol Dweck of Stanford and the closely related idea of grit developed by Angela Duckworth, the University of Pennsylvania. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I know both of these people from, you know, uh, both, you know, working in higher education, but also I hear that from my, from my kid, you know, about in, uh, you know, reinforcing their schools. Right. And it's like, I remember, you know, the principal at their elementary school setting out some videos about this kind of, so that we could understand what this growth mindset was. Um, and it's like, God, it makes a whole lot of sense. Right. It's kind of like how kids learn, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Um, and kind of putting him on this path. I'm like, that is so awesome to see in, um, in public schools and then to find that it's being attacked is just so, it's just devastating in my mind. It is. And, and you know, re- regarding that, like, topic, so I found this, um, I found this article uh, from the Tallahassee Democrat, <laughs> mm. and it talks about that there is, uh, I guess, one of the approved publishers for Florida is called Accelerate Learning, um, and it talks about how uh, it was taken over by the Carlisle Group. It's a, an investment oh firm. Oh, my God. Are you serious? The Carlisle Group? Yeah, and guess guess who was the co CEO of that firm? Is that Dick Cheney, right? Was or he was No or... Governor Governor Glenn Youngkin. Get out of here. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I have to send you the link. But yes, it is. And it says it says um it says the car Isle, it says the Carl Group, a global investment firm, acquired Accelerate Learning on December twentieth, two thousand and eight, according to the firm's website. During that time, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin was the co-CEO of the firm. After 25 years with the company, Youngkin resigned in 2020 to run for office. And and I would also like to note, too, that it's um, out of Texas, the uh, – the accelerate learning yeah i'm pretty sure i'm just trying to look at this i want to see if i have this this whole carlisle group i believe was uh what dick cheney worked for maybe i'm just uh... it sounds familiar Carlyle Group got its name from the New York Hotel owned by one of its first investors, the Mellon family, but its roster of investors includes such luminaries such as former President George H.W. Bush, uh, yeah. James Baker, uh, Arthur Lewitt. Um, 
No, maybe Dick Cheney was the other one. I remember because they Carlisle was also big uh, in kind of investing and getting these kind of independent kind of no bid contracts um, to mm-hmm. Iraq during that period of time. So that's great. That's great to know that that's what they're doing for our in our schools now. Isn't it? I just I thought that piece of information. I was like, oh look, Glenn Youngkin. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. No, and, and, yeah. Because and these are these are still the politicians. Like they're they'll be like, no, there's no like bigger conspiracy of what we're doing at all. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. So I don't know. So we'll see. I mean, we'll see what happens with this. I mean, this is something that, uh, you, you know, I I, I just I, I just. I don't know why there's not more of a fight back, to be honest with you. Um, and I know that there's like just for I mean, it, it should be I, I mean, I guess I, I guess I shouldn't speak too quickly because because uh, I have been kind of buried under kind of mountains of uh, work at, at my university. But um, so I haven't been following as closely as I might have been. But, you know, I, I mean, I hope that there's like dozens of lawsuits that are going to be filed. Right. And I hope that there's you know, and like, I don't know why, like, like, like the Biden administration from there is not just kind of like railing on this stuff. Um, it's just it's just crazy. Did, did you see that? Did you happen to catch that video of the um, the state um, representative from Michigan, the woman who was kind of um, responded to some kind of right-wing Republican who was fundraising basically by claiming that this Democrat woman was, uh, was, was grooming kids and stuff like this. Uh, vaguely. I haven't yeah. seen the video. Vaguely. There's this woman, I, I wish I, I should, her name's like, like Martin, uh, Mallory something or other from, um, let's see, Michigan. Uh, Mallory, I think is her name. Mallory McMorrow. Um, so if any, if anybody out there has not seen, oh, she's a senator. Yeah, she's a state senator. Okay. Uh, she. So there was basically. Oh, I, I'm. I'm. I'm going to be really. Uh, I, I'm. I'm going to be very vague on this because the details are kind of escaping me at this point. But, anyways, um, Mallory Mallow. Uh, Mallory McMorrow was targeted in a fundraising email um, by this other. Um, uh, state senator in Michigan, and basically mm-hmm. in that fundraising email, basically made all sorts of claims about, you know, her contributing to child abuse and you know, uh, gr- you know this whole grooming logic stuff. And she, yeah. Went, yeah, and she went to the floor of that Senate and she gave the kind of speech, right, um, and response and tore that that kind of like that woman up, exposed the fundraising email and so on. And I saw her interviewed on. Um, uh, kind of one of the shows. I think I think it was uh, um, Mehdi Hassan's show um, okay. had her on to kind of talk. I had to talk to her about about that thing, and she's like, he's he's like, I don't know why more Democrats don't do this. And she said, you know, it was very interesting for I think a lot of the problems that we've been talking about, like you know, over the months, right here in kind of Bucks County and around, is like he's like he's like, why don't more Democrats do that, right? Why don't they attack? Right. And kind of refute and engage and argue against these people who are saying these outlandish conspiracy theories. And one of the things that she said, and it was really, you know, awesome that she said it in this way. She's like, look, I she's like, I sat on it for a day when I was alerted about that fundraising email. I I, I sat on it for a day, but I was just so furious um, that I knew I had to respond. He's like, you know, she's like, but look, you know, you go back and forth with these conspiracy theories, right? It's like, you know, part of it, you know, you hear this a lot from people is that you don't want to respond to it because you don't want to give it air, 
right? And by acknowledging yeah. that exists, then that you're actually giving it more power. And she's like, I just fundamentally believe that we got to respond to this stuff. And so I decided to respond. And I'm like, thank God. Like, I mean, we need that logic to get into the bloodstream of uh, like, you know, in kind of our, our politics across the board is that we can't allow this stuff to take root in our communities. No. And, and by the Democratic strategy, okay, the Democratic Party strategy is is to ignore, is to pretend it's not happening, right? Because they think it's like, you know, a toddler saying a bad word. Oh, if you ignore it, it'll go away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it doesn't. It doesn't go away. And by the Democrats not responding, by them not really pushing back against this stuff, you know, as a united front, right, like as a party as a, in general as a whole, you know, they're basically just giving – you know, the far right and, and a lot of these Republicans, the nod to be like, OK, just do what you want, you know, because there's no counter to it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I, I guess, that, you know, when I think a lot about like how people perceive politics, I mean, you know, there's people like, you know, like people like you and I who are kind of following this stuff who are kind of like tapped into, you know, the the the, the broader campaigning stuff and all this kind of thing. But I think a lot like a lot of people are responding to, uh, you know, the the, the kind of the persona of, you know, these different politicians. And I think that, you know, if you're being attacked, right, and all these things are being said that are just kind of outlandish and someone's attacking you and you just kind of ignore it and don't don't respond like the Democrats, the professional Democrats, right, the whole professional middle class people, they tend to think that like, oh, you want to kind of, you know, this is Michelle Obama stuff. They go low, you go high. Right. So yeah. you just kind of ignore it. You just kind of rise above it and all that. But I think that for a lot of folks who are, are thinking about themselves, like if somebody came after me and said that, are you kidding me? Exactly. Right. Why won't you stand up for yourselves? It makes them look weak. Right. Or completely disconnected and aloof from the rest of us. Yeah. And these aren't just fringe groups like this isn't this isn't like a small right. fringe group that like has no power that doesn't have an audience. I, this is not like that. I mean, and that's what I think the Democrats fail continuously fail to understand is that this is not the 1980s anymore <laughs> you know right. this is not the early 90s these fringe groups are are steering the helm i mean i don't i can't stress enough that if january 6 didn't solidify that into their minds and i don't know what it's going to take right exactly and uh, um you know well you know i think that well Having our school board taken over by QAnon people, maybe that's it. Maybe that'll kind of um, kind of continue to uh, keep the fire burden. I know that's going to be uh, something certainly going forward. But well, and that's going to be. I think I think you're right because I think that's going to be a fight we are going to be having for a very long time. Um, there, it's it's not slowing down. We have, no. you know, I know up in up in Bucks County here, there's people vying for you know the next ten years of elections. Like they they're starting to set up strategies because we we have had you know, um, media personalities and top politicians be like, yes, like you need to go to your school board and you need to stop this grooming, this, this terrible stuff that's happening at the root. Um, so. <laughs> it's just crazy, just yeah. crazy, just crazy. It, yeah, it is. Uh, well, crazy. Well, the one thing I guess we have talked about one kind of small bit of positive news uh, for like in the national score is that we do have uh, Biden is, uh, I think, because of pressure that uh, recall just last week, there was a, a big uh, protest down in Washington, D.C. 
um, to get that for debt cancellation, um, mm. that people are really ramping up efforts to um, put, you know, basically kind of hold Biden's feet to the fire. I mean, he made a promise when he was campaigning that he was going to re- um, forgive uh, $10,000 uh, per borrower, right, of debt. He has yet to do that. Um, and we keep on hearing that there's some, they need to study this, whatever, but apparently that analysis was done last, you know, ages ago and they still are not releasing it. I I don't know why they're dragging their feet. It makes no sense. It makes Mm -hmm. no sense to me. Um, you know, and they're saying, well, we don't, you know, this, but this is a, this is a classic thing that I, I, you know, I find in democratic party politics all the time is like, you know, they say, well, we don't know if that, uh, we have the legal authority to do this. And I'm like, <laughs> well, let, let's put it like this. Let's say that there's a question, right? Let's just say that there's a question. Let's say that, you know, all the, you know, the precedent that's out there that, that kind of, you know, gave the reason why the American prospects spent an entire issue right before Biden took office, going through all the things that could be done with executive orders, right? Um, and executive orders simply by enforcing laws that were already on the books or using existing authority, right? Yep. They went through and they did that, one of them being the cancellation of student loan debt. Right. Um, There's a reason why they did that, because there was all this precedent. There was all this background. It has established law. It's all there. But let's just say for the sake of argument, there's a little bit of a question. And the little bit of a question is like, okay, well, we don't know if we have that authority. It seems to me that the way you find the answer to that question is that you do it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then if somebody wants to sue, then that can get worked out in court. Right. I mean, Sitting back and waiting for, I don't know what they're waiting for, some kind of like light from on high to come and tell them that they've got the, you know, capital T truth of the matter. I mean, are you kidding me? I, I have no idea. I don't know. And this is this is one of the biggest gripes that I think I have with, I mean, both parties, but with the Democrats especially is because I don't know what world they're living in. I, I, I really don't. We have people waiting. I mean, it's a very popular topic. Why not just go ahead and do it? I, I think... The Biden administration, I think they're too cautious with everything, partly because of the shenanigans and the scandals and everything that went on with Trump. And I think they're trying to, I think Biden is trying to like make himself the complete opposite, but he's, he's not right. He's just center like he's always been. And he is not doing a very good job, I think, to hold on to his voter base. Yeah. You know, because like you were saying in previous in previous shows, I mean, the mobilization that came out to get him into office, you know, and then for him to just take this long to do something as simple as ten thousand dollars, yeah, it's it's I I'm not surprised. I don't know why they're waiting so long, and I'm really hoping that this goes through because it would help me personally, <laughs> among with like millions and millions of other people. No, totally. I can't, you know, I tell you, I've got students, uh, you know, this has been true for the past, the past couple of years, um, you know, when they're doing research projects and things like this in my classes is like, you know, invariably there's, there's at least a couple of students that are, are writing about student loan debt, are doing research on student loan debt and are actually really questioning why the heck they ever went to college. Right. Um, because they start to do the math. Right. And using their kind of like, you know, emboldened social emotional learning skills, they're very aware <laughs> of the impact that the, this math has on their lives. And they're like, you know, look, there's, you know, the job prospects aren't great, um, that there's, you know, the wages are low. 
It's going to be hard to get a job in my career, and I'm going to come out with you know twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars worth of debt. Right? And if I go yeah. to grad school or kind of medical school or law school, that's going to be in the hundreds of thousands. I mean, it's well, and there and there's there's like see there's even and that's a problem. Like that's even a problem in, I think. Uh, like fields like healthcare, you know, which doesn't necessarily always require higher education, right? But like, you know, for nursing and stuff like that, like LPNs have been phased out in a lot of areas yep. because people, companies don't want to pay the prices. Um, when I was working as a CNA, I was offered a med tech position making less than what I was making as a certified nursing assistant. And I would have been responsible for double the patient load and their medications. And they were doing it because they didn't want to hire a nurse. Because basically I was filling a nurse's position without the nursing degree so they could pay less. Oh, it's God. it's sad. It really is. So what were they doing? Were they like, what was the pitch? Like, hey, listen, we got this job <laughs> offer for you. It pays less. There's more work. But you're going to have greater job satisfaction knowing that you're helping <laughs> out us make profit. I mean, what if I mean, like, what, like how do, how do well, you even approach it with a straight face? <laughs> I just can't even understand that. <laughs> well, that's what I basically called them out on. And I told them that. And I said, you're basically hiring me. I said, for an LPN. And I said, why don't you hire an LPN? And it's because they don't want to pay an LPN. You know, and LPNs don't even make as much money as they should. Right. You know, so it's – but that's happening in every sector. And I see that happening with um, – I think a lot of places too, like a bachelor's degree isn't always good enough. You know, you need that master. So you, in order to make that salary, right, <laughs> which I say you could live perhaps comfortably-ish with, depending mm -hmm. on what you're doing, you know, you have to invest more in into that higher education and that's more debt, you know, that you have to tack on. And then, you know, we could get into what colleges charge for some of these classes, which is absurd, I think, anyway, but... Yeah, um, but I think the Biden administration would do a lot of good because if he does go out there, even if he is to wipe away ten, twenty thousand dollars of student loan debt, you know, he is setting people up for a more financially stable future just by one stroke of his pen. Yeah. And like and it seems to be that just politically, like politically speaking, it also sets you up for your next campaign. Right. It's basically saying yeah. we're going to go out and we're going to cancel this debt. And then what? And then you do it. And then the next day, the sentence is like, and we need to pass policies that are never going to let this happen again. <laughs> there needs to be a free like uh, a free public higher education in every state across this country. Right. Oh, yeah. There needs to be a, like, you know, cracking down on these kind of predatory bank and predatory lendings. We need to be cracking down on these for profit universities that are ripping people, primarily black women um, like off. Right. And, I mean, that would be like I mean, that seems to be like a no brainer. Right. You do this thing. $10,000, you make all these people happy, and then you say, hey, guess what? Get on the train with me. We're going to make sure this doesn't happen to your kids and down the road. We're going to end this now. Oh, it is. I've, I've known plenty of people who got ripped off by attending an online school, right? Yep. Because they found out that the degree they got isn't really good for anything, or you know, they were promised this and promised that, and, and they're stuck then with all of this debt, right, for classes for some of these people who aren't, didn't even attend. Like, they didn't even finish. 
100%. Well, let's see. Let's hope it happens. Um, I mean, again, there's like millions, <laughs> millions of students out there. So, okay, good. We'll take the 40,000. We'll take the 40,000 people that are going to have their kind of loans canceled. Um, and the 3.6 million borrowers are going to get a little bit of kind of extra time to pay more money to banks. Um, but okay. But at least it's they're, they're not going to be kind of thrown out of their homes and things like that at this point. Okay, we'll take that for now. But can we freaking please um, continue building that spine, even if it's like one vertebrae at a time <laughs> to get this done. Holy well, it cow. is. And, and and something that I think that the, the Biden administration and every administration should be considering, right, is that how people, like what type of education people are, are using or needing, you know, for, for, for their lives, right? right. For, for our society. You know, I, 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 you know, and I recently saw an argument online, somebody had posted something on Facebook, like, well, the guy right out of high school who wants to start his own plumbing company needs to take a loan out because he needs to buy equipment. He needs to buy trucks. Right. Right. So I'm looking at that and I'm like, well, and that should be considered because I see that as the same as investing in a college. Right. Like I'm yep. investing in the knowledge that I'm getting and I can't do my job without that. Right. Well, this guy can't do his job. And I think that the whole structure of society, it comes back to that, the, you know, you have to take something away from somebody in order in order to give this group something, right? And it's just that zero-sum philosophy, yes, and I exactly. hate it. Yep. And I hate it, and I wish that politicians would take stuff that into account, right? It doesn't necessarily mean – because I think that's a great idea. Why don't we start out everybody with a certain amount of money after high school to invest in whatever they want, right, as to get them started? <laughs> you can go to college. You could buy a truck to start your business. You could do whatever. And I think, you know, we just need to reframe – how we go about this, you know, because the end goal isn't necessarily about making money. And that's where I think we need to we need to we need to put that stop. And the Biden administration can make that first step <laughs> and do it today. Um, he's not. But that's that's what needs to happen. Yeah. So you have baby steps and then you have like the babies of insect steps, right, or something, <laughs> which I what they're going to take now. But hey, well, again, we'll take it. Um, but great point there about, too, as well, about that zero-sum game. And, uh, you know, I'm always thinking back yeah. to uh, Heather McGee's book on the, the Sum of Us, where she kind of talks about that long history of how that kind of, you know, okay, look, you're getting something, therefore it must be being taken away from me, so therefore I'm going to stop you from getting it so we can both suffer, and like, you know, <laughs> separately is the weirdest, uh, you know, but, you know, very powerful discourse in this country, that's for sure. Yeah. Oh, crazy. Well, listen, well, let's, let's take a quick break and we'll come back. we got a couple things uh, a little bit more closer to home. Um, we'll talk a little bit. I'll, I've got to, you know, let you know a little bit about what's happened with Pashi. Um, and we're going to check in on Amy's experience um, doing a little uh, phone banking last night, which I'm totally <laughs> psyched to hear about. Uh, maybe if anybody's got ideas about uh, or thoughts or reflections about what happened at last night's uh PA Democratic Senate debate. Um, love to hear your thoughts. Um, but we'll be back right after this message, uh, or message, right after this quick break, I should say, um, uh, with more about what's happening at PA. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. I want to remind you, if you are watching us on YouTube or listening to us on our podcast, you make sure that if you're watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, like this stream, right, and hit that notification bell so you know every time we go live. You can also head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. You can become a member for as little as five bucks a month, right? And if you're listening to us on a podcast, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure you hit that five-star review. Leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Uh, we super, super appreciate it. Um, so we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back right after this.
I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 2011. That was the day the labor movement lost one of its most poignant voices. Hazel Dickens was born in Mercer County, West Virginia in 1935. It was coal country. Hazel grew up knowing the life of a mining community. She was one of 11 children. Her brothers worked in the mines. One of her sisters worked cleaning the house of a mine supervisor. Her father was a Baptist preacher with a booming singing voice. Hazel inherited her father's talent for song. In the 1960s, she broke into the male-dominated world of bluegrass with her singing partner, Alice Gerard. At the time, they were one of the few women acts on the bluegrass circuit. In the years that follow, Hazel struck out on her own as a solo act. Many of her original songs spoke about the coal mining life she knew growing up in Mercer County. She wrote Black Lung for her oldest brother, who died from the disease. Her songs became part of some of the most iconic labor films ever made. Her song, They'll Never Keep Us Down, was the anthem for the Oscar-winning documentary Harlan County, USA. Another song, Hills of Galilee, was the feature in the film Matawan. Both films told the stories of coal mining strikes. Hazel often sang at union rallies and at benefits for miners and their families. Her obituary, published in the Washington Post, quoted music historian Charles Wolfe. He said her singing has not only that high, lonesome sound, but you can hear the pain and anguish and the anger in it. It is absolutely heartfelt and sincere. United we stand, divided we fall. For every dime they give us, a battle must be fought. So working people, use your power, the key to liberty. Don't support that rich man's style of luxury. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. We are back. We are back, everybody. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken, here once again with Amy Connect. Um, loving it. Um, uh, I didn't get a chance to do this last week. Last week, uh, it was uh, I had family come in from out of town for kind of over the Easter weekend holiday. Um, I thought I was able to put together. I was able to put together this little uh, replacement show, kind of, instead of doing the live show on Friday, it just did not pan out. Um, there was too much stuff happening around my house. Like for example, my refrigerator died (laughs) then then a week without a refrigerator and then a new one came and the new one came damaged and it was all sorts of stuff like this. I didn't get to do it. Um, but I was going to do a show and maybe I will do still this at some point, um, about what just was taking place in the state system of higher education. And there was an article, um, by, um, uh, Bill Shackner from the, uh, Post-Gazette out in Pittsburgh. He's a, a phenomenal reporter, uh, does great work, um, covering education, um, higher education. And he had this piece that was out there who, he wasn't the only one who was reporting on this, but I mean, uh, he did just a bang up job on it. I thought. Um, anyways, the Edinburgh University, which is one of the universities that is uh, part of the state system of higher education that's being consolidated as part of this new plan by the chancellor. Um, um, Edinburgh University, as one of their um, recruitment strategies back in like 2000, I want to say the 2000. 
2010, 2011, 2013 maybe is when that was. Let me, let me look at that when I put that article out. Uh, 2013, I guess. So it was around this, but it, but it was leading up to it before then. Um, Edinburgh University was one of the universities um, that uh, was deciding that, okay, we need to expand enrollment. That's what we everybody heard, expand enrollment. And how do you do that? Well, you need to have luxury facilities. You need to put in a new kind of special gym, right, with all the latest kind of workout technologies. You need to have, you know, luxury suites instead of kind of traditional dorms, a way of attracting students. And so they spent all this money. Um, basically building these dorms. And it, it was funny. There was a whole series of articles I did over the course of about about a year and a half that was digging into um, how these projects were being financed. Because it wasn't just at Edinburgh. It was at Edinburgh. It was at um, Cal University. It was at Kutztown University, at Westchester, at East Stroudsburg, right across the state. Um, all the state system universities were suddenly kind of investing all this money into new buildings and grounds and kind of like beautification projects. That's what, you know, we actually had a beautification committee at Kutztown University um, where they were, uh, you know, spending hundreds of thousand dollars on new signage at the university, all this branding stuff. And we were sitting there as faculty members being told that, sorry, we have no money. We're going to have to cut staff. We're going to have to um, cut faculty. We're going to um, eliminate um, kind of, you know, two shifts on the custodial staff. So there will only be once um, um, overnight shift in the building, things like this. Right. So there was it was all austerity all the time. Meanwhile, our classes were getting bitter, uh, bigger as our programs were getting cut. More students were flooding to the university. And yet we were broke. We had, you know, there was no money. It was like, you know, everything was in crisis. And yet these buildings are going up. And so it turns out that basically what was happening is that there's this nice little scheme that's called off-balance sheet financing, right? And what was happening was that these uh, the university foundations, which are technically not part of the university, right, were basically taking out like huge sums of money and loans, right, to finance these projects. And technically the foundation was a nonprofit organization. So the nonprofit organization was the one that was taking this money out. Then meanwhile, the, the universities were taking money out of their education and general fund um, um, budgets and then basically paying off the foundation to cover that debt, right? So when you looked on the books, it looked as if the university wasn't in debt. Right. Um, and it was only because of the way that they kept the books, um, the way that they, you know, basically were keeping these two sets of books. Right. Where the money actually was versus, you know, the money was actually being spent. So anyways, if you want to I'm really glossing over a lot of important details here. Um, but that's what was happening at, at Edinburgh University. And they came out with the, the Highland one and Highland two or Highland seven and eight or whatever it was called. These big luxury suite dorms. They had a huge PR blast. Um, um, uh, a campaign out there um, and to say, because that's what students want. They want luxury dorms and we have to compete with, you know, whoever they think they're competing with. Well, meanwhile, as that was happening, the demographic data was showing that uh, we're going to see declining um, population, especially in the western part of the state. And Edinburgh, if you don't know, is kind of way up in the kind of like uh, kind of northwest corner of Pennsylvania. Um, they were seeing kind of like a decline of population in the area. And before this big spate of building, they were, you know, they were being shown. You know, I, I was shown this information, too, as well, about that there was going to be this kind of demographic. Um, there was a demographic bump where there's going to be that's when we were at the height of our enrollments. And then it was going to slowly uh, kind of drop off. Right. So they knew that information. 
right? But still they were spending all this money doing this. And so now you basically have these enormous luxury dorms that were built that um, aren't being used. They're empty. And so what are they going to do? They're going to sell them off, right? So why do I say this? What is important? It's like, you know, part of me is just like, God, you know, at least I can, I feel like I was on the right track and doing that reporting back then. Right. Um, and but it's also a little bit frustrating that, you know, th that people didn't listen <laughs> as much. I mean, despite there were some lawsuits, uh, we did a documentary with Colleen Bradley. She was the uh, vice president of administration of finance at Westchester University, who basically came out and blow the whistle, blew the whistle on these schemes about what was happening at not just Westchester, but at Kutztown and, Mul and lots of other Pashi universities. Um, there were people in the administration um, at Pashi in Harrisburg who were basically instructing the administration of finance people at each university about how to do this kind of dual book system. Right. Oh um, and it was, it was just hugely corrupt and full of fraud uh, or what might be called fraud. And uh, nobody was ever held accountable. And instead we're, we're fed this story that, you know, Oh my God, it's just because of laws of nature. Like there's a declining enrollment. And now suddenly that's why your program's got to go away. That's why you've got to consolidate all these universities. That's why, you know, students are going to have to have larger classrooms. You know, that's why every, all, you know, half your classes are going to have to be online, all that stuff. And it's all rooted into this freaking corruption at the, and the rot at the core um, in that kind of administrative scheme that was going on. And no one's ever been held accountable. And it's pretty crazy. So has, has this ever, I mean, has this ever gotten the attention of anybody in the state legislature body? A little bit. I mean, you know, there were, um, there were some hearings. There were some hearings that Colleen Bradley, who I just mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, she testified about this stuff. Um, there were hearings um, in Harrisburg um, about some of these fraud ac accusations. Um, her court or her case um it, 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 because of this weird, this weird issue in law, right? So basically, you, you know, you can't sue the state, right? Yeah. Unless there's there's harm <laughs> being caused, right? Yeah. And unless you could document there's harm being caused, and also there's this like stipulation for state employees that about if you're acting within your capacity as a uh an employee as a state employee then you can't bring suit right and what what had happened was she has i literally i have all the documents that she had yeah. right she had all the emails she had all the information but because she was she started by going through the chain of command by bringing this to light to um first her superiors right and then like the council of trustees and then to kind of the wider bodies which I would call doing her job and blowing the whistle, right, yeah. on what was happening about the fraud stuff, because these other people did not know. Because it, it was ruled by federal courts that she was, uh, it, she did not have standing, she could not bring the case because it was in the, her capacity as an employee. Oh, my goodness. So that's it. And then there was a special, and this is what I, you know, personally, I was always really pissed off about is that her case, she did a special appeal to the Supreme Court, which we talk about in the documentary that I did with her. Um, and the, a lot of people, including my union, ABSCUF, uh, refused to um, write uh, an amicus brief in support of her case to go to the Supreme Court for consideration um, because they were concerned about blowback from Republican politicians. Ugh. You know, and I, I don't want to single out just Abscuff because it was a bunch of other folks, but, you know, it's yeah. like 
you know, so she was left out. And so she lost her job. You know, she was, uh, you know, persona non grata on a lot of um, university you know, campuses because, you know, she was a whistleblower. I mean, she finally landed a job. But and I guess there's some kind of her case is now going to be seeing after several years now is going to it's going to get a, the possibility of another day in court. But my, my point is, you know, I, you know, I remember writing to like, you know, um, you, you know, the attorney general's office. Right. <laughs> you know, in, uh, or, or am I saying that right in the um, in the uh, auditor general right at in yeah. Pennsylvania? It's like, well, here's all this information. Why aren't you doing something about it? And it was like, it was, it was crickets. And you know what? What was happening at the time is people were saying that, well, if we expose this fraud, I mean, it's the same problem we were talking before about, say, how Democrats operate. This is true, I think, most of most professionals in many ways, is that um, what they were concerned about was that if we blow this up, right, which as it should have been, and make everybody aware of this. Right. What's going to happen is that people are going to say, oh, my God, they these universities had more money than they than they said they did. Right. And they misspent it. How dare they do that? And therefore, we should cut their funds if they're spending money like that. So people were afraid that if this got out too widely. Right. That, quote unquote, taxpayers were going to be upset. That would give ammunition to Republican policymakers to further cut funding for public higher education. Right. That's that's a, a kind of very brief version of the argument. And it, it just it was just nonsense. And, you know, I got into like pretty bad arguments with some folks basically saying, um, you know, no, you need to basically make the argument because yeah. I'll tell you the same thing that you're afraid about that they're using as a bludgeon at the state level for cutting those funds is the same thing that's happening on the campuses because they're telling us we have no money. And that's why we have to kind of have larger classes with fewer faculty have our mm -hmm. programs cut. Yep. It's the same weapon being used in two different sites and we have to fight back and people are like, nope. <laughs> yeah, I, well, and I think you're right. That's that's a strategy that I think I is used across the board, right? In all different types of, yep. of professional industries. Yep. So, I mean, you, you see that in the healthcare industry all the time. <laughs> yep, exactly, exactly. So anyways, that's my little kind of uh, my little diatribe for the day. <laughs> <laughs> For uh, I, you know, I've got a link to uh, Wall Street on the Susquehanna Posse Bond Scheme Bleeds Education um, Education Budget for Beautiful Buildings. Um, there's a, a bunch of other articles on Raging Chicken. If you just look up uh, Posse, you'll be able to kind of check that out. Um, it's It's been nice to see some of that stuff get a, a second reading um, for a lot of folks across the state who are unaware of, of that history, you know, just because, you know, it's a long time ago. That was 2013 uh, when I was yeah. writing that stuff. And it's, you know, seven years ago, eight years ago. So... Um, but, you know, history matters, right? <laughs> and oh, yeah, accountability totally. matters. <laughs> so whatever. So enough of that about that. Uh, so I understand. So one, number one, I was glad to see uh, that you're, you're kind of saying this morning that, uh, you know, the, the move to try to get Palisade School Board um, to stream their meetings, that was uh, making a little splash um, kind of yeah. local news. Yeah, it made the Bucks County Herald, um, you know, it made the front page, uh, yay. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Um, I, I do believe Palisades has, like, I, I think there's a, a reporter that attends, like, all the meetings and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, there was a nice little article, and it talked about, you know, having, we, we have the, putting the option of live streaming uh, regular board meetings at Palisades, which happen bi-monthly on Wednesdays. 
um, at seven o'clock. <laughs> if anybody is interested in, in going, you should go. You should very much go. Um, and then also committee meetings because during during the pandemic, we had audio phone call. Like you could you could call uh, like this number and you could connect to to the meeting for I, I think it was for all the meetings for the regular board meeting for the committee meetings. It was really great. Um, but then they got rid of that, right? So like it's just this phone call that you can that you it's just this number that you can call and you enter a pin and it connects you to to the board meeting but that's all we have right mm -hmm. like that's it and you know wednesday nights at seven o'clock it's the middle of the week and <laughs> getting there to these meetings isn't always an option especially i think more people are aware of it with with the pandemic and on top of it the district like it there's the technology is there right, right. like to offer this and neighboring districts have it central bucks has live stream we have it in penridge it. yep Penridge does it. And I think that with everything going on, I think it would be a really good move on, on the board's part to approve it, right? Because you're giving your community, your taxpayers, your stakeholders, there's a, there's a trigger word right there, stakeholder, um, <laughs> uh, you know, better accessibility, you know, to what's going on at the board, to see who's talking, to see what issues are, are coming up, to see what's not being talked about. You know, it's really easy for people to tune in to a, a live stream Google Meet, you know, instead of having to go there. Because like I said, it's it's seven o'clock on a Wednesday night. That's right. You've got sports and dinners and bedtimes and this and that. And if you've worked all day, you're tired. And I, I just think that having the live stream option would be fabulous. And obviously, uh, people at the Herald think so, too, because it made their front page. Yep. So. <laughs> That's fantastic. No, I'm, I'm glad to see, you know, that's kind of getting some, you know, again, additional attention and some traction. And hopefully that mm -hmm. leads to more more folks paying even more attention, want to get behind this um, and uh, do that. And I think all our school boards should be doing it at this point. And, you know, and, and look, and anybody who's ever gone into any of these meetings, I mean, it, let, let's just say this. I mean, as much as I'm not a fan of like endless Zoom meetings, OK, um, try to listen to a meeting on a phone and pay attention is like virtually impossible for me right at least if i'm well, sitting at a computer and watching it i can do it what's that i'm sorry yeah, like you don't know who's talking half the time you don't know who's yep. always talking on the phone if somebody doesn't talk loud enough i don't know how many times the calls have dropped or been staticky or you know whatever the issue was yep um you know so and and like i said palisades is such a small little district tucked in between these these bigger districts right i mean we have lehigh valley to the north of us we have central box quakertown and Penridge, you know surrounding us um and i really just feel like palisades needs to get with the times a little bit here I feel like we're dragging our feet it's the 21st century <laughs> welcome <laughs> <laughs> very good very good no awesome yeah, so. um but in so then so let's see what happens with that. Well, that's be kind of cool. I'm sure we'll see more about that in the yeah, days and weeks updated. ahead. Um, I know that it, it's uh, it made it made the meeting the other night. Um, I haven't gone over the minutes. Like I have to really get into it some more. Um, but I do believe it's up for consideration. The board is considering it. They have to do a read. This whole process of you know getting it through. So yeah, and I think you know the the part about something like that too is it, it's 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 virtually like it's just about good, about good practice, right? You know, mm -hmm. it's not about like, it doesn't favor anybody over the other, you know, and it's just about giving people access so that they can, they can 
find out what's going on, make it easier for people to be part of the process. I mean, how hard is that, right? It, it, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be hard. Right. And that's exactly it, right? Like this isn't trying to like catch anybody or, or there's no like nefarious reasons behind it other than the fact of like, we live in a very digital world and mm -hmm. we need to adapt to that, right? Like to be able to keep up with, with, with what's going on. And if it's something as simple as just recording a public school board meeting, I don't see why that should be an issue. 100%. Um, so in other kind of pro political participatory thing, uh, you did some phone banking last night from what you're telling me. I did. I did. I signed up to do some phone banking. Um, so before I, so I wrote, um, I did an article uh, that was published in Cyril's newsletter about uh, a candidate down in Philadelphia. She's running for the third congressional district. Her name is Alexandra Hunt. She is running on the progressive ticket and she's running against incumbent Dwight Evans. Um, and I had first come across her. I was, I was looking for some information. I was researching some uh, Pennsylvania female candidates and I came across her name on Ballopedia <laughs> and her entire platform just blew me away. Um, you don't see candidates like her too often. She is, uh, she's young. She's very progressive. I think she has one of the more progressive platforms in the entire state. You know, she's all about uh, criminal justice reform, you know, gun control in Philadelphia, uh, poverty. I mean, she covers a lot of it. But one of the more interesting parts about her is that, you know, she used to work as an exotic dancer. And generally, I would not, that's not like a big deal for, for someone like that. Like, I don't care. You know what I mean? Right, but right, for a lot right. of people, for our society, that's a major stigma. Right. And, and of course the media has like leapt upon this and been like, Oh my gosh, like she's this former sex worker. And that's all they talk about. You know, well, she here, she holds two master's degree. You know, she's like a public researcher, public health researcher. She volunteered her time during COVID for free, you know, doing testing and this and that. And she's, a social justice activist. I mean, she's really involved with, with the community down there in Philadelphia. So I decided to uh, phone bank for her last night, which was interesting. Um, it was different than doing phone banking when we were doing it up here for the election. It was slightly different. I really liked the process um, of it. Mm -hmm. I had, we did like a Zoom meeting with a crash course on how to phone bank and the scripts and everything. It was good. There's a lot of really awesome people that are supporting her campaign uh, for her to make a stand to, to get her name out there down in Philadelphia. I wish we had more candidates like her running up here in Bucks County. Yeah. I think Ashley Ahaz is probably the closest we would get. Yeah. <laughs> I know, like, right, we'll I'm see. just kind of like, uh, <laughs> you know, but. <laughs> I want to see, I want to, yeah, I'll see, I, I want to see the, I'm not knocking Ashley Ahaz at all. I'm just saying. Uh, I, I don't I, I I don't see the uh, the the progressive platform that we see coming on from Alexander Hunt with Ashley no. Ahas. And again, that's not to say that she's not that kind of Ashley Ahas wouldn't do good work or anything like this. But I think that uh, uh, Ashley Ahas's uh, campaign is has has lots of the marks of, say, the Democratic establishment consulting class and things like this. And again, this is just a, as a descriptor, this has been I, I want to be clear, there's been a long issue and a long problem <laughs> with this uh, being the case in campaigning up here in Bucks County. So this is not mm -hmm. to knock her. Like, I think actually, if I put my cards on the table, I say I think that she has come out as running a better campaign than I've seen being run up here in a long, long time. I think yeah. that she's actually, uh, you know, has got a a personal story and has got a 
um, a an energy around campaigning um, that she's actually giving herself a better shot than anybody else has had in a while. So uh, so I'll give all that. But uh, I think I think you're right. I mean, Alexandra Hunt is, uh, you know, she is clearly has stake, put the stake in the ground. Of what, this is what it looks like to run as a progressive candidate. Yeah, you know, and her supporters, like the people I was talking with last night, they're excited about her. Um, and some of the people that I ended up speaking with on the phone seemed pretty excited. They they seemed excited about her stance. Now, you know, mind you, the people that we were calling, I was not calling Republican households. I wasn't calling independent mm-hmm. households. I was calling uh, what they call super voters, people who go out and vote religiously in every election, um, who know what's going on, right? But at the same point, some of these people didn't know about Alexandra Hunt, and they were on the phone with me as they're Googling her name and looking at her platform. And they were pretty surprised to see, you know, that she covers a lot of this. And I think that more politicians should do that. I think, you know, her biggest strength is that she is standing up for the underdog. And there are a lot of underdogs in that city. Like, that whole city is an underdog, right? Like, Philadelphia has always been that way. And it's fabulous, but she's speaking up for you know, especially for women who are generally left out of politics, right? Just black, brown, white of all races, people who work in any type of industry that revolves around sex. If you're female, you get a bad rap no matter what. And and I think that she's taking a really great stance. She's she's standing up for these people and saying, you know, they have a voice too. Yeah. And she's going up against Dwight Evans, who's like, you know, he's like, you know, he's been an institution who hasn't really had to campaign very much, who's taken tons of corporate money, um, you know, who's, you know, been a friend of the charter school industry, has been a friend of the oil and gas industry. Um, um, but he hasn't had to do a whole lot. <laughs> right. Um, mm-hmm. And I and I think that, you know, and again, I you know, this is where kind of you know, the politics of incumbency plays in where and especially in that district. Right. Because it right now it is you know, this is I know this has been one of the challenges uh, for for Alexander Hunt's campaign is that, you know, this is one of the only kind of uh, black congressional district. Right. Um, in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And and, you know, Dwight Evans, he's a he's a black man and uh, he's been there for a while. And, you know, that that presents all sorts of significant kind of challenges to so see her to make the headway that she's made has been a, a really, really impressive. And it's good. I mean, I'm just fascinated to see where this race ends up. So, oh, me, too. I mean, I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed, you know, during the primaries. I think she's great. I, I am so excited to see people like her, um, you know, stepping up, right? Because that's, for her to do what she's doing, to be very vocal, to be very vocal about her background, um, you know, and to be like, there is nothing wrong with this, right? There's nothing wrong with what I used to do. I put myself through college this way. It's legal. Like, why is there such an issue? Why does that disqualify me from being a reputable citizen, right? Right. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I kind of talk about that in that newsletter that I had, I had put out a little bit, but she's, like I said, I, I think, I think that this is what the Democratic Party needs. We need candidates who are able to excite their supporters, you know, who have a platform that you can get behind, you know, yes, you know, Philadelphia really needs some prison reform. You know what I mean? Yes, they need to demilitarize their police. You know, so there's all these issues and people really can get behind a lot of this stuff. Um, Even I think moderates, you know, can see a lot of times where problems are, right? Like public safety in Philadelphia is a concern among both, among everybody. 100%. So how, when in your conversations with people, with voters that you called, I mean, did you, I mean, did you found that people were kind of receptive to her platform and things like this? Is that? um, I did. I did. I mean, I had a couple of phone calls that, you know, hung up immediately. Um, 
a lot of the people I talked to seemed pretty, they were either completely turned off like the second I started talking or they were interested. Um, it was kind of like either one of the two. I had a couple of people that were a little undecided, um, but a lot of people were all about her. They really liked um, her edu her stance on education, right? She's mm -hmm. She's got this... Um, uh, new deal for education, yep. right? It's not hers, it's a federal thing, but she supports it and she supports higher education for all. She supports eradicating student debt. Um, she, you know, so there's all of these issues that people are really excited about and because she supports maybe that particular issue, <laughs> like they're all about it, right? So, and that's what I had a lot of. They're like, oh, she's behind education. She She's behind this. And I don't know what the Evans campaign is putting out there i don't know mm -hmm. what they're telling their their voter base so i don't know how like i, I so i don't know to like to compare campaigns at the moment um but i did have a general sense that people are excited about her yeah at least the ones that i was calling that's pretty awesome that's pretty awesome yeah um, i did if you if you want to know something though i did get stuck on a phone call for 25 <laughs> minutes with a gentleman um who gave me a breakdown in the history lesson of the traffic light oh <laughs> it was a very enlightening conversation it was a good conversation i had asked the gentleman what he felt were issues in his community and he started talking about education he started talking about crime he started talking about public safety and he launched into this this basically a tirade of like of, of something we see every day a traffic light and yet people don't know who invented the traffic light and it happened to be uh, a black man, you know? So I, I, it was a good conversation. It was interesting. <laughs> yeah. I actually remember when I first found out about that. Yeah. And it's like uh, one of the early inventors too, as well. Uh, yeah. So cool. Um, yeah. So I, I, as a way to kind of close out on the day and we got kind of chatting a little about this before the show, but uh, uh, talk about some of the say books we've been reading. <laughs> right. So uh, oh, yeah. what's on your, uh, what's on your plate these days? Well, until the semester finishes, um, I have, yes. I'm, I'm reading. I'm reading a bunch of different stuff. Um, cause mainly because I'm I'm still doing papers. So yeah, yeah. I'm reading this one book. It's called "The Fascism This Time and the Global Future of Democracy" by Theo. Uh, I believe it's Horish, Horish, H O R E S. And then I'm also reading. Um, oh, this is another great one: "How Democracies Die," <laughs> uh, with Stephen Levitsky. Uh, but then I'm also reading a Pearl S. Buck novel, so to, to kind of offset, offset. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, I've got a, I just finished uh, Jason Stanley's book, How Fascism Works. It's been a book I've been wanting to read. I, I wanted to read for a little bit now. It just hasn't like haven't been in like either like the mood for that particular book and something else took its place. I want to read first or whatever. Um, uh, but it is a absolutely fantastic book. Um, I would highly recommend it to anybody. It's basically, you know, and it's actually, it, it fits right into a conversation I was having with this kind of say group of uh, friends. I'm kind of on this, like whatever Facebook kind of messaging group. And we get together like once a month, people I went to college with and stuff. And, um, about, you know, about fascism and, you know, what, what's happening with different right wing movements around the world and all that. And, you know, is this fascism or the U.S. and blah, blah, blah. And what I like about Jason Stanley's book is that he's not focused on kind of like, OK, let's kind of come up with a definition of fascism and see if we can which societies fit it and what what's don't. What yeah. he's doing, he's talking about the components that go into a like a fascist politics, right, mm -hmm. that leads kind of toward in those kind of directions. And of course, it's like it's haunting 
really when you're um, kind of kind of going when he's going through these different parts about it. But he's it's very interesting just to breaking down the gender politics of fascism about the uh, the us and them stuff, obviously. Um, one of the parts that I thought was most fascinating is toward the end of the book when he's talking about the ways that um, fascism blends is a weird blend of this kind of like like strict hierarchy and kind of like uniformity of, you know, obviously Aryan race kind of stuff. And yeah. yet at the same very at the very same time is is like super like almost extremely individualistic. Right. So it's 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 about meritocracy. It's all this stuff. But it's meritocracy, of course, of the in-group. Right. Yeah. That keeps yeah. you disconnected from building bonds of solidarity with other folks. Right. So. Oh, yeah. And everything is facing towards the state. It's just a great book. So I would strongly recommend that for everybody. Um, I have this one class that I teach. Um, it's called uh, Rhetoric, Democracy and Advocacy, which is going to this, this is going to make it into that reading list. Certainly. Um, for there. Your classes sound so interesting. I should come and audit one of them. Oh, please. Yeah, you just <laughs> come in. I won't tell anybody. <laughs> so I, I, I've never taken a class on uh, composition and rhetoric. So, well, I, I mean, I mean, the classes, I mean, the classes that we talk more about here are more on. Uh, well, it's like kind of rhetoric is, is part of it. You know, you think about rhetoric. I always think about rhetoric as like is like how to do things with communication. Right. What kind of organizational yeah. strategy? It's like strategy and tactic stuff and communications and. Um, stuff. And that's different from what, you know, say we talk about the focus primarily on composition, which is, you know, focus on writing and things like this, this is more about strategy, tactics, communication and things like this. So maybe yeah, within your ballpark. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the other one that this was like, you know, I, I heard I was like, OK, I'm going to try this one out. I, I, I was interested. I've been thinking a lot about constitutional stuff lately. And um, um, Ellie Mistal uh, has got a new book out. Um, he's been he's a commentator, he's a legal commentator, on MSNBC. He's uh, um, you know, he's all over the place. He writes for The Nation and all this stuff. And he's got a new book out. It's called How uh, Allow Me to Retort a Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. Right. And so I had just finished literally like, you know, and I have it on audiobook right now, which was I was the best choice I could have made. So I was listening. I should say I was this audiobook with how fascism works, too. I'm going like back and forth between the audiobook and the actual hardback book, whatever. Um, I have a weird reading strategy, but um, <laughs> with, with Ali Mistal's book, right, he actually is the one who's reading the book. Right. And if you've ever seen him on TV, he does like these amazing rants. It's great. But the introduction to that book, I almost had to pull over my car because I was laughing so hard. Right. It was like it felt like joy incarnate, like listening to him shred these arguments around the, the, uh, the Constitution, but doing it in like the most approachable kind of like we're having this argument at the bar kind of way. It was freaking awesome. Oh, it sounds um, awesome. Yeah, so I would strongly recommend it. If like seriously, I, whatever you think about, uh, um, like you know, how Constitution, everything, just just for the style and the joy of how he's coming at this, it felt so refreshing, and engaging. So I'll I'll put that on my uh, list of recommended re recommended books too as well. Allow me to retort. So nice. There you nice. go. Well, hey, I should probably let you go. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like the end of the week. I feel like uh, I I have a weird uh, I have a weird feeling of both uh, like exhaustion and just kind of okay. I just want to keep on going. <laughs> you know, it's like it's weird. I know. Oh my god, it's a weird time of the year. It it is totally. I always get super like just kind of uptight this time of year. I try not to be right, but it's the end of the semester. This is my last one. Thank God. So, but I know for you, like it, there's so much going on. Yeah, yeah, indeed. 
Indeed. Well, everybody, uh, you know, uh, Amy, again, uh, thank you for coming on today. It was so awesome to be able to not have to sit here by myself, but uh, <laughs> having the double bonus of not just not just having someone on, but having me able to talk to you about it today, which has been Aww, awesome. Always yeah, a pleasure. it's fantastic. Um, so, you know, um, I guess we'll keep on plugging away. I'm sure that we'll, we'll have you back on soon. Um, as you know, the school board stuff is never going to go away. You're always doing kind of awesome stuff. We're going to be ramping up obviously toward the midterm elections. we got the primaries yeah. coming up on May 17th. Yeah. Whew. Lots going on. Yeah. The first show after the primary should be, that should be interesting. That should be fun. Yep. Yep. I can't wait. Um, and that's when I feel like that's the, that's the official for me. It's always, that's when I start to really get the, that's a, the kickoff season, you know, it's like, that's when it really gets rolling. <laughs> um, and I know how important the primaries are. Don't get me wrong, but it's like, you know, it's like, this is, you know, moving forward, then we're in kind of battle mode. So oh, yeah. there we go. Well, all right, Amy, uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. It's supposed to be a pretty decent one. I know I'm going to try to spend some time outside digging in the garden. So uh, have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. All right, everybody. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, it has been a pleasure once again to spend part of your day, or part of my day with you, your day with me. I don't know why. Anyways, uh, check us out. Raging Chicken, press.org, patreon.com slash rcpress. See ya!